On this episode of Network Collective, Jordan and I are joined by Marek Izalski, the CTO of Felix, a hosting and connectivity service provider in the UK. I started to follow Merrick when I read his blog about their move from MicroTik to Vios and the CVE it uncovered. I was blown away from this blog and the accompanying slide deck. After this podcast, I recommend everyone go read the PDF slide presentation of this talk, and I'll have the link below in the show notes. Besides having amazing technical content, it's also a lesson in how to build a concise and direct slide deck. No kidding, go look at the slides. Since then, I've been following their blog releases from Felix, including the most recent, which came out earlier this year. Merrick and his team have overcome CVEs, building out pops with remote hands during a lockdown in their country, bugs in software code, bugs in firmware drivers. I love reading this journey because it's a peek behind the curtain of what it takes to run a service provider network and the problems they face. The blogs are always highly technical and you always finish reading having learned something new. I suggest everyone add Merrick and Felix to their list of people and companies to follow for sharing great content and enriching the network community as a whole. Uh, first of all, Merrick, thanks for joining us today. I wanted to start by allowing you to introduce yourself. Give us the brief background on yourself and your professional experience and any networking or professional uh, certifications you have. Well, first, thank you, Tony and Jordan, for inviting me. And, and that was quite an introduction to, to follow up. So no pressure here. No. Um, no. So uh, <clears throat> I'm Marek. I, I've been in network engineering for about 15 years now. Um, before that, I was actually a software developer uh, working in the public in public health in the NHS, National Health Service in the UK. And prior to that, that's a small software company doing embedded and security development. In terms of my sort of educational background, I am a computer scientist. I have a degree in that from, uh, gosh, half a lifetime ago now. And um, Gradually shifted into network engineering um, towards the end of my time at the, the National Health Service as some of the project challenges we had there sort of drew me from software and systems more towards the sort of infrastructure side of things. And that piqued my interest a lot. And from there, I actually started doing some, some projects um, outside the NHS because we were allowed to, uh, to do a bit of moonlighting. And from that, I really got the bug, I guess, for what it is to, to make networks and distributed systems sort of really, really go. Um, it was a bit of a callback to the first job I had, which was embedded software and security. Um, but it, it very much more, was more real and more architectural rather than, you know, something small and working with little bits of software to, whoa, these are huge global systems now that we're talking about. Um, so that's, that's where I got the bug. I, I think that's so interesting, given in the present day uh, networking environment and community, um, a lot of networkers are finding themselves steering more towards code and scripting and, and software development, you know, as everyone's trying to introduce Python and Ansible and all these continuous build uh, environments into networking. So a lot of networkers who came up this way are now making that turn into software development, where it sounds like you went started on the other side and at some point made that turn into uh, into networking. Exactly. I've, I've very much come from, from the other side. And for that reason, I guess, um, I don't actually have any of the Cisco, Juniper, or, or any vendor certifications. All of my background and learning um, has been, initially, it was self-driven um, from, from open source networking projects like Quagga and, you know, all, all those sort of 
historical, like late '90s, early 2000s open source projects, um, to to gradually then having to dip my toe into okay, so how does this Cisco stuff work, and how do I apply what I've learned from debugging Quagga to what is this command line interface that I now have to learn? And so, I guess academia helped me learn how to study. And then from there, it was just self-directed learning in, in the various vendors and uh, software stacks that we're all using now. So, so this is you're really the, quite something. Oh. It's, it's the exact opposite progression, I think, that is the standard yeah. progression. Because I, I see a lot of networkers, we, we talked about the transition from infrastructure to uh, automation and programmability. But then also a pretty common theme is to go from major brand, right, to, to for mm. getting your teeth cut on Cisco or Juniper or Arista or fill in the blank with with who you're doing with with major brands. And then only once you're really comfortable moving to something that is a bit more open source, maybe less guardrails as to how to deploy it and those types of things. <laughs> yeah. So it's really funny to, to see your progression is called as almost almost like the antithesis of what I think is the standard network engineer progression. And I think that's probably uh, influenced the way you approach uh problems and solutions and the things that you do, which uh, I'm sure we'll discover more as we go along, but it is, it is quite interesting for sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree that it very much has influenced my approach to things because we don't reach for a, you know, oh, we've got this bit of kit that we know, or we know this vendor does this thing really well. It's very much a, some projects are almost a journey of discovery from day one because it's a case of what what is going to be the best maybe i don't have that experience thankfully uh the team isn't just myself um the other senior engineer at felix she she actually has much more of a traditional uh entry into the industry having actually started you know via the help desk kind of route working at an internet provider and working up to engineer and then senior engineer and head of networks so so uh, you mentioned uh, the other engineer, but uh, why don't you tell us, uh, I mentioned you at the top of the show that you're the CTO of Felix. So why don't you describe a little bit about um, Felix and the services you guys offer so that we understand some of the problems that you guys have had to overcome? Sure. So when we initially founded um, Felix, we very much were focused on consultancy around open source software, networking, and security. That that was where it all started. And the shift there very very quickly moved towards networking from, from the sort of pure software side to a lot more on the infrastructure side. Um, and then over time, we pivoted that a little to say, well, we've, we've got all this operational experience from helping build and run other people's networks. Why aren't we doing that for ourselves? So at that point, we started uh, building out in a couple of data centers in Manchester, uh, getting some infrastructure going, and we started mainly around sort of traditional VPS type hosting stuff, lots of virtual machines running on some tin in what is now an Equinix data center in Manchester. That, that was how we got started. Um, we then gradually, I guess, acquired a bit of a name as, as a small company who could work with you if you had slightly odd requirements. Um, very much our focus was on sort of weird bespoke projects like I want to set up a network like an internet provider, but we don't actually want to provide internet to anybody but ourselves. But we want that level of resilience that you get from building a, a multi-homed network that means we aren't 
going to get a phone call or a letter from our, our ISP saying, we're renumbering, you have to change all your addressing, or oh, we're, we're having some problems on, on this upstream link, sorry, it's causing a problem for you. So that, that was where we started, meeting the needs of some, some slightly niche markets there. And then gradually, um, over the last sort of three, four years, it's moved to helping other internet providers build and maintain their networks. So the last three or four customers that we've taken on have all been access networks who are all running their own local um, or, again, potentially niche network, um, whether it's a, a wireless provider or a hybrid wireless and, and, and fiber provider, or in some cases, um, people doing stuff with 4G and a mix of, of other access technologies as well. So we've gradually moved into being a helping people build access provider networks and give them somewhere to put that, that core infrastructure that they need and provide that third line support. So in, in helping these other companies, uh, these other service providers and these other niche communities, you guys have come across a sort of whole string of, uh, of different problems to solve. And that's kind of how I found you was a talk that you gave. I saw it on a YouTube video and then I found the blog and then I started reading all of the articles that you guys have and I found them absolutely amazing. So um, I wonder if we could turn back the clock a little and kind of talk about uh, one of the first blogs that I found um from you guys which i think was in 2018 maybe 2018 yeah. around that time frame um and it was kind of around your move from microtik to to vios okay so um as i've already said we you know we help quite a few uh, wireless providers and microtik routers are quite popular in those so we thought hey uh, this is about 2015 we we picked microtik as a vendor um for some of our core routers and around 2017, I noticed there were some weird things going on with V6. Um, not, not the usual sort of well-known bugs about how their routing implementation works, but actually being able to remotely crash Microtik routers by sending packets through them. And it took about a year for Microtik to move forward to actually fixing that. Um, in the meantime, I was worried for our customers that, well, there's this bug that is really quite bad as far as I'm concerned, because we, we run dual stack everywhere. So to, be, to say to our customers, sorry, this V6 thing that's new and cool and everyone should be doing, yeah, that, that basically means the whole network can crash because of, of, of bad things. Um, that wasn't a great place to be. So we started evaluating a, a, an alternative just in case this bug was going to be consigned to, we'll, we'll fix it in the next version. Um, which is, you know, we're what three years on now, nearly, um, isn't still is still isn't quite ready. Thankfully, Microtik did actually move forward and fix that. But in the meantime, we'd already looked at what the alternatives could alternatives could be and what the benefits might be for us, and um, we'd sort of already committed by that point. Um, and we'd we'd evaluated a bunch of different vendors' uh, software stacks. We looked at Six Wind in particular, their Turbo Router. And we looked at Vios as the sort of main two contenders for using pretty typical x86 boxes with pretty typical network hardware as routers to do, you know, up to about the 10 to 20, maybe 40 gig sort of mark um, was was where we were trying to pitch it. And Vios came out top for a few reasons. Um, one of them being it's open source and it's 
actually almost exactly the same software stack we ran when we first stuck Kit in a data center because we started that with Quagga and Bird. So, oh, we're, we're back to FRR routing, which is, you know, Quagga today. Brilliant. They'll have fixed all those bugs, those, those sharp edges we had like 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Well, we, we might get onto different bugs uh, later on. But yeah, yeah it, it felt like almost coming home in that regard. So um, I, I thought that uh, that article was very cool because uh, that blog was very cool because you dive in to the specifics of the CVE and the sort of um, this sort of uh, challenging pieces with sort of reporting that to the vendor and, and emphasizing its, its priority. Um, and, and like you said, it took some time for the vendor to actually do something about it. And I felt like at some point you were like, you know what, I'm just, I'm, we're just going to move on. Yeah, that very much was it. It was a case of, well, we don't know if this is going to be fixed. We've we've tried to sound the alarm as loud as we can. Um, but yeah, we've we've got to have a contingency because this is still a business and we still so, have customers. So, so, we, so we've mentioned this CVE, but I wonder, I, I don't know how we can do this uh, in, a, in an audible podcast, but is there a way we've discussed this problem and how this is one of the things that drove you from one vendor to the other? Is there a way you can sort of describe that for the listeners, what that CVE was? Very roughly, um, it was that the the Microtik router OS uses a, a fairly old Linux kernel, and in that version of the Linux kernel, there is an IPv6 root cache. So every time a root lookup is done for v6, a cache entry is just temporarily stored in memory. And the bug basically was that if you send an awful lot of packets from an awful lot of different source and destination addresses, transiting a router, you will stick an awful lot of entries into memory. Um, that's cleared out periodically, but if you send you know, only a few hundred thousand packets a second, you will actually exhaust all of the kernel memory on that router, triggering a crash and reboot, which isn't the kind of thing you really want in a core router. Um, and the way we discovered it was completely by accident. So it was very much unexpected behavior. Um, and very easy to trigger. It wasn't something you could firewall off. It wasn't something you could could really defend against with that network architecture and that vendor's equipment. So it it was a case of, well, how do we fix this for people that can only afford Microtik stuff? I mean, we, we could have bought some DPI stuff or put some sort of anti-DDoS mitigation in, but you know, Microtik's well used in in countries where you know that that two thousand dollars or pounds that you've spent on your your router was the budget. <laughs> so how how can you fix how can you fix it for that? That's why I felt so strongly that the vendor needed to fix it. And 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 again, one of the th one of the reasons why I loved your your breakdown in the in the blog and in your discussion about it is because. I come from a very traditional networking background, you know, enterprise networking. And when I start thinking to myself, how did these guys figure out, you know, about a, a momentary route cache entry in memory? You know what I mean? How did, how did they, how did these network traditional networking people figure this out? And, and I think you kind of described it earlier was, you know, at least you come from a, a software um, development background, you know, where putting stuff in memory and pulling it back out is sort of, you know, table stakes for operating and, and building software. But as network engineers, we often don't have to think about all of the things that the router puts in memory and takes out briefly. You know, sure. we we have monitoring systems for that. You know, we really don't have to think about it. And I think it's so cool to 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 know that there's networkers out there 
who are doing doing something at a much higher level than I'm able to compute. <laughs> is it high level or is it, I guess, almost lower level? It's, it's Yeah, almost lower level. You're right. Yeah, it's, well, it's it's from that experience of having run Quagger and Linux boxes for years. It was, you know, how, how does the networking stack work on this thing? And having that curiosity of mind to, well, it's, it's a good motto. Every day is learning day, right? Every day is school day. And yeah. that very much has been my life since even before I went to university. It's like, learn something new every day. And that's, that's how I learned about the V6 networking stack. And <laughs> so it's, I, it's, since since I read that article and it saw that blog, and that was from a few years ago, again, I've been following you guys, so I know that you've been continually building out at different pops, and I think you have a, an entire ring now. Is that right? We, we have a ring around the UK with a variety of providers um, between Manchester and Leeds in the north of the UK, down to a couple of data centers, well, three data centers, two campuses in, in London. So we do have a, a little ring in Manchester across to Leeds, down to London, a little ring around London and back up to Manchester again. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, Netbox and how that is utilized to be able to deploy these different sites and make sure you have that sort of single source of truth. Sure. Um, it's it's funny you mentioned Netbox because I, I had a quick flick through um, the, the previous shows that you've done. And there's a lot about network to code and sources of truth. It's like, this is this is clearly a theme at the moment, and yeah. it's what I strongly believe in. So, maybe three years ago, um, we started doing some consultancy for one customer, and they're a they're a much larger network than we are. Um, we were brought in to just beef up their their networks team um, because they had some some heavy lifting that needed doing. And one of the projects that that struck me that they really needed to do was to improve. Um, not just automation, but just that source of truth, because they were still at the stage of, oh boy, we're using uh, Google Docs, we're using spreadsheets for managing a slash 16 of addresses. <sighs> Mind blown. Um, <laughs> so we, we looked at a bunch of different solutions, and Netbox was like number one amazing, again, open source project. It's just just a fabulous bit of work that uh, I think it was DigitalOcean originally started, wasn't it? Yeah, Jeremy Stretch. Yeah, Jeremy Stretch is part of DigitalOcean and has since moved to uh, the Network to Code team. As Stretch yes. had made, he made his move over there, and he's the maintainer of the project. But yeah, it was definitely meeting some of DigitalOcean's needs, and that's where it came out of. Boy, does it meet needs! It's such a friendly and easy to use tool. Um, it, it's kind of got to the stage where if we don't see someone running Netbox in their network, uh, we're sort of Maybe we need to charge danger money rates because, you know, it, it provides such a powerful way of, of knowing where everything is, what everything is, what's assigned to what, that you, you know, you, you have some confidence coming in to do either maintenance or upgrades or build outs. Um, and for us, it, it was the fact that API was almost a sort of first class citizen of Netbox that we could really use it for what we wanted to do with, with Vios. We're very automation heavy. I mean, I've already said we're, we're quite small. Um, and the only way we've we've managed to service our client base is by doing lots of automation. It, it comes from that software development background that I have of, well, if I have to do a task twice, I should have really written a script to do it instead. So building our routers in Vios very much came from that sort of mentality of, 
we're going to need to build another pop one day, right? Or a router is going to fail, and we, we don't want to be just scraping a config out of oxidized and pasting it in again. Let's instead build the configs. So we were already using SaltStack for our automation of, of um, virtual servers and physical servers. So can we use SaltStack to actually build the whole Vios config? And that was, that was the beginning of what is now an open source project that we've released, which is all about pulling from NetBox VLAN and interface and IP addressing information and turning that into a fully-fledged running config to, to deploy to Vios and commit it. And there you go. There's a, there's a new router. Done. It's, it's working now. Well, uh, that's, I mean, as you describe it, it sounds like it's easy. <laughs> and and yeah. maybe maybe there is some simplicity to it, but I'm still looking at uh, you know APIs and and automatically deploying um, configs and having them pushed out uh, to routers as like a, a still a mountain to climb uh, uh, to get there. It was it was a lot of work, I have to admit. So we started um, started doing the development on this round about the time I gave the the talk about our. Microtik bug. Um, so that would be early 2019. And it was about six months before we actually deployed those routers to production, um, September, October time. Sometime around then, I think, we, we did the two maintenances. Um, it very much was a lot of development work in the meantime. It was a case of, well, we've got these two boxes with Vios running on them. We've got our salt master running somewhere. We obviously already have NetBox because we'd already been using it for years by that point. Um, and it was just a case of iterating, you know, what doesn't it do? What doesn't it do? Okay, brilliant. We've got interfaces configured. Now what? Well, now we need sub-interfaces. Brilliant. Okay, let's write a bit more code for that. What do we need to do now? Um, V6 would be good because that's important. Okay, done. And it was just a case of iterating and iterating and iterating, playing with a spare transit feed, announcing a slash 24, seeing is this working? And just testing one feature at a time and eventually, okay, we think we can push a router to production now. Let's let's book a couple of maintenances in. We've we've done all the testing we can. Let's let's do it. You know what I think is so cool about about Felix and, and the first of all, I love that you guys publish all of your blog posts and and they're all, you know, um, the hard points of learning. <laughs> mm. But but it almost makes it sound like you guys are just out there having fun. You know, like you're just, you're building routers out of x86 servers, you know, you're putting in NIC cards, you're running open source routers, you're just toying with all these different things. And, and I think at the end of the day, you're running a real production, you know, uh, network, a real service provider enterprise uh, network, you know, with, with um, resiliency and, and it just sounds like a lot of fun. Like you guys are just playing in the network space, but, but you have a, a you know, a really awesome business. And I just feel like. <laughs> You know, I want to go play too. <laughs> a lot of times, you know, when we get to the production network stuff, you know, it's like it's very methodical. There's a lot of backout procedures. You know, it's a lot of that that sort of mindset, and it's definitely not like let's just build the thing and and see if it works. And like, oh, it works. Let's put it in production. You know, there's there's a whole hierarchy of uh, bureaucracy um, over here, and it just sounds like you guys don't seem to have that sort of bureaucracy problem. You just build cool things and do them. So it does help that we are small. And you know, a decision about network architecture is between myself and Lou. 
we will sit down and we will talk about, okay, does this sound like it's a good way to go? How, how are we going to build this and deploy this? Does this sort of make sense? You know, her background's very much more on the traditional. She came in via the sort of carrier side. Mine's more on the software side. Somewhere between the two, we reach a consensus and it's like, okay, let's let's build a lab. Let's lab this out. Let's let's test and try and find as many sharp edges because there, there are going to be some, right? doesn't matter which vendor you pick. Um, what's what's the saying? It's something like, how much did you pay, not for your router, but per bug, <laughs> right? So I, I haven't paid necessarily, you know, cash for the, for the software, but I've certainly paid cash in terms of my time and my staff's time to actually build and develop this. So we've still spent money, but... I feel that that's the reason why we, we do this this openness and this transparency in, in when we find a sharp edge and we, you know, we cut ourselves on some driver bugs or something. We want to work with the community that, that built that project or built that software to try and make it better for everyone again. So again, it comes back to that open source sort of mindset. And when you're the boss, you know, which I am, I, I can say, well, this is the way we're going, right? Um, speaking of working with with uh, some of the companies and and sort of getting support um, uh, for software and things, I, I wonder if we can get into um, what I read in the latest blog, which was about some of the um, bugs in in FRR, right? Free range routing, something yeah. our listeners are very familiar with, and as well as the the driver bug also in the Intel driver, and and how you had to reach out to Vios for that. Um, and first of all, I want to say that after reading that blog, um, I went on the GitHub issues page because you linked it from your blog. So I mm -hmm. went on free range routing's um, issues page um, and I saw that Donald Sharp was handling your bug directly. And yep. so I went and copied that link because Donald Sharp is in our our Slack. I went and copied that link and pasted that in. And he was like, oh, yeah, I dealt with that last week because this was just a few weeks ago. You know, or it was in December, yeah. I think. He's like, yeah, yeah, I think I dealt with that recently. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just sort of funny that here was someone's blog I was reading, you know, from over in the UK is working with someone um, who's over on our side and someone who's tied to our show and our community very personally. And, um, you know, and, and they're interacting and I had no idea. And it's just just more of the, the networking community, you know, that bond between the networking community. And uh, I think it's so cool. So I did share that with with Donald, and he did say, "Yep, yep, that was me." <laughs> I think that was so funny. That is that is funny, and it's it's actually really cool of of him to have jumped on it so quickly as well, because just just the fact that there are so many good vendors, because uh, I think he's at Cumulus, isn't he? That that, that yeah. there are vendors sponsoring development time on, you know, they they could have closed sourced their fork of of FRR potentially. They could they could have done their own thing. They could have been more like Arista or maybe um, some of the other white box vendors in the way they're, they're doing their networking stacks. But no, they're, again, putting their time and their money into into furthering these brilliant open source projects. Um, no, incredibly grateful because that's not something our tiny little company can can afford to do all the time. So we do stand on the shoulders of giants. We, we have yeah. to acknowledge that. And to be fair, uh, was Cumulus now Cumulus as part of NVIDIA, right? It is, yeah. <laughs> tied up into, into all those acquisitions. But yes, uh, they've, they've invested heavily. Cumulus, when they were independent, and now obviously still continue to do so uh, under the guise of NVIDIA. 
uh, in investing into FRR, uh, which was for a lot of reasons very much needed in the broader community over what you were mentioning, like, you know, over uh, Quagga specifically, but, but Bird as well. Um, yeah. And it's, there's a lot of, uh, there's, and it's not just Cumulus. There's a lot of other big players who are contributing there. There's a lot of people who are using FRR under the hood who are very interested to see it move forward, which is, which is how you gain momentum in open source, right? So, exactly. you know, there are many, many companies who are taking FRR and integrating it into their products, big name vendors that you use their stuff that you have no idea that FRR is under the hood. It's there. And so, uh, and so, but then to be able to continue to get uh, what, we, what we would consider world-class support, I think is one of the big arguments against open source software is the idea is, you know, I have a throat to choke. I have someone I can call for support. Here it is. You had this issue and you're working with the main developer. When was the last time that you called a vendor <laughs> and you got on the, you got on the phone with the guy who wrote the code? Um, yeah. And the answer is it's, you haven't. Um, and if you have, you work for, you know, one of the 10 largest companies in the world. Um, so like, <laughs> congrats. I wish I were you. Um, but no, that's not, that's not the typical experience. And so it's really interesting. I am kind of curious what you guys ran into. I see a list of a few bugs here. So maybe if you can just give us the rundown of, of, of the, of what, what were there. I think that we're all kind of interested in, in, in what, you know, what's going on in that space. I don't have the luxury. I, I consult, I do a lot of the Cisco space. So like I'm not using FRR. So, um, you know, what did you run into? And, and I'm kind of curious what the impacts were to you. Sure. So I suppose the most embarrassing one was um, on the day that Cloudflare launched is bgpsafeyet.com, which was their raising awareness program for RPKI. And at this point, it was like... Awareness program for RPKI, but yes. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, we've, we've, we've done RPKI. So, you know, feeling kind of cool about that because we did it before it was, you know, before everyone was talking about it. Actually, no, that earlier that morning, um, BGPD in FRR had actually crashed with a seg fault. And it was actually caused by a bug in, in FRR's um, RPK implement, RPKI implementation, which, yeah, was a bit embarrassing because rather than celebrating that morning, it's like, yeah, we did this. Look, here's the screenshot. It was instead, oh, God, why has this gone wrong? Where, why is BGP keep crashing? What, what, what? So, yeah, that, that involved getting down and dirty with some of the FRR code and chatting with a couple of colleagues. And yeah, it, it turned out there was a, a null pointer dereference somewhere within the code. That got fixed pretty quickly, but yeah, that was one. So that, that wasn't great. Um, more recently though, just, just as recently as, as December, uh, we, we, we'd finished completing our ring around the UK, which obviously had changed the topology of our network. And when that happened, OSPF 60, which is the, the the daemon that implements OSPF v3, segfaulted and crashed, and that just killed the OSPF um, v3 topology within the network. And it actually cascaded. It didn't just crash on one router. It, it cascaded across nearly all of them. Um, and at that point, the, the way Vios's architecture works is, that's it, game over. That router is not going to talk OSPF v3 until you either reboot it or manually bootstrap a configuration on it. It's an absolute pain to recover from. That turned out to be, again, down to a, a sort of, I think it was, again, a null point of dereferencing somewhere within the um, OSPF 6D process, um, which you know had been spotted and was, was fixed probably around about the same week that we were having these problems. Um, but 
we we didn't actually have access to that fix or hadn't actually seen that fix get back backported to the version of FRR that we were running at that point. So we had to move forward from FRR 7.3 to FRR 7.5 because that was in the more recent version of VIOS. We did our testing, check, you know, does this work? Spin up some VMs, run, run VIOS in them, check that we can change topology and a similar sort of network doesn't cause this this cascading crash. Brilliant. We're feeling pretty good that this is going to fix the problem. Let's deploy it into production. So we start on one of our routers down in London. Goes smooth. It's brilliant. Following morning, do the next router, this one up in Manchester. Seems to go smooth. Brilliant. Right, next morning, let's go do the one down in London. Oh, God, what just happened in Manchester? And what had happened was we have slightly different hardware um, for the different routers. And the ones up in Manchester have Intel X710 um, NICs. These are the ones that use Intel's i40e drivers, which I've had, I've had experience of those over the years, and they are a little bit finicky. They are, they are tricky to get working reliably because you've got to make sure your version of the kernel matches the version of the driver, matches the version of the firmware running on them. And there's like sweet spots of, of the combinations. And you know, we thought we were running a sweet spot, but it turns out there's actually a bug in the driver where it gradually consumes more and more memory. Every packet that goes through just uses just a tiny bit more memory in the Linux kernel. And then eventually all 16 gigs is gone. It back. Yeah, eventually yeah. it goes away. And the router crashes and dies. So that burnt us. Um, but again, it's this, you know, you get to talk to the lead developer here. Um, so yeah, we file a ticket. We, you know, start talking on GitHub. We, we start talking in, in the VIOS Slack. And um, Christian from, from the VIOS core team, he's like, oh, yeah, okay, I can see what's going on here. Yep. How about I give you a version of VIOS that doesn't have Intel's drivers in, but has instead the Linux in stock, in kernel version of the Intel driver? So it's not Intel, the vendor's driver, it's the open source one. Like, okay, we'll, we'll give that a try. Um, so he built up an ISO for us. We go and download that. The router in Manchester had crashed. Okay, we've taken it out of production. Let's let's deploy this bleeding edge version of VIOS, which which has got these you know unknown drivers on. Let's let's do some testing. So we spent twenty four hours or so testing that, seeing that okay, it's it's not causing any problems in the lab. Let's let's gradually see if we can actually introduce this back into into production. So again, plan a maintenance window monitor everything, you know, cross fingers and watch everything very carefully. And we actually found it had better performance. So after all that, you know, th thank you Intel for your drivers, but they, uh, yeah, they, they, they caused an outage for us instead. So we're, we're, we're coming back to that theme though of, you know, being able to pick up the phone almost and it, you're not talking to the lead dev, then, then who are you talking to? Well, here we were. It was amazing. Yeah, Incredible. that's, that's 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 just I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think you see uh, too many stories that sort of go full circle like that, you know, in a in a production, you know, where you find a problem, you know, you 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 identify what the issue is, you find the project on GitHub, you talk to the developers, they fix it, they patch it. And I want to point out in your blog, the timeline you mentioned was, you know, all this sort of happened within 
uh, a very short time period, but also it was like between Christmas and New Year's or something. Yeah, that's right. So the the crash happened on the thirty first. It was you know New Year's Eve. It's time to wind down. Maybe have a few drinks. No, nope. Reuters got decided to crash that evening. That's brilliant. Um, but yeah, the, the the fix was was we were up and running by I think the fourth or the fifth. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. It's it's really incredible, and it's it comes down to the dedication of the the people. It's it's that passion for making systems better. It's it's that engineering sort of mindset and discipline. I think that's really going to be you know a bit of my soapbox here, but I think that that needs to be part of the equation when you're considering your vendors. I think that's mm. something that we've kind of neglected when we choose vendors. We choose because of speeds and feeds. We choose because of features. We choose because of trusted reputation, maybe the support mechanisms that are in place, like do, do they have a phone number I can call? Do I feel like I've got protection? But the, the reality is, is, you know, I think that the distance between you as the, you as the operator and someone who can fix your problem isn't, is there a 24 by seven phone, call, phone number I can call? It's how quickly am I going to actually get resolution? How committed are they to fixing those problems? Because we see this challenge and I, you know, it feels like I'm picking on the big vendors I'm not really picking on the big vendors. As you get bigger, this is harder to do um, yeah. unless, unless you put a lot of focus into it. But you could focus on it like it's a choice. <laughs> and at the end of the day, here you are using a, a bunch of, of components that I think a lot of people would shy away from using because of the open source nature, because of the of of the fact that there isn't a structured way to support the way that some vendors provide. I Yet your experiences are kind of the, what I desire for my vendors for experience. I, I, it's that kind of dedicated response. I, Jordan, I would say that's probably a perceived lack of support. Oh, it's com it's completely perceived. Yeah, because, I, I agree with that. Merrick is, Merrick is definitely demonstrating on more than one vendor, more than one thing, where he's receiving support very quickly at a time period on our calendar here in the U.S. and I, you know, for, for most of the Christian world, uh, is like no changes. No one pushed out changes between Christmas and New Year's, okay? Everyone's on vacation. Don't change any code. Don't push anything to production. And here's Merrick out there getting support for two, um, two projects that, that he needs. And, I mean, it's a, it's a testament to the level yeah. of support you can yeah. get from open source. And on the other side of that, I mean, we've talked about what your shop really is, right? Like your shop is not some monster shop that demands attention, right? Like what you guys are doing is very cool and you've got a, got a great team doing it, but it's not like you come in because you've spent billions. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so the lead developer, you know, like you have their number on speed dial. This is, this is a very average operation, you know, a very normal, what people would expect to be running in and just about anywhere else. And, and you're getting that kind of attention. That's interesting. I think that's a, it's a really interesting counterpoint to what I think is the common or popular narrative about what support looks like in the open source community. I'd agree there. Um, I, I do have colleagues who, who are that person at the vendor that the, the really big, big name customer, the national carrier or whatever they're the person that gets that phone call because that's that level of support that, you know, a national telco gets. But it, I, yeah, it is somewhat surprising that we got that level of support. I was expecting that we would be delving into the code a lot more, maybe rolling our own. But I think, again, it comes down to that, that passion that, that people have when they own a project, when it's like, this is my thing. And I, I don't have a huge hierarchy above me telling me who, you know, what, what do I need to be working on? It's like, well, this customer reported this bug on, on GitHub. Um, yeah, I've got a few minutes to look at this. 
let's have a look. Okay, no, it's quite quick to fix. Here you go, customer. Do you, you, you're fairly technically knowledgeable, clearly, because of the bug report. Go play. Let me know if this has fixed it. So I, th I think it's more the fact that we were almost coming at it from a, we're a software developer using your software. Here is a software bug. Rather than, hi, we're a networking company coming to you with a tack, which is for a software bug. Now you've got to sort of replicate our environment. We, we sort of skipped some of those steps in the sort of bug reporting process because, hey, it's on this line, right? I can see that because I've attached a debugger to the process and I can see that's where it's segfaulting. So we think this is what the problem is. It's, I, I guess there's a lot more self-support involved uh, in our scenario because having access to that code, which you don't in the case of a vendor, we can do the study and we can do the research and we can almost literally point at where the problem is and say, hey. Yeah. I mean, it, that sounds like it, you know, it requires a specialization in that type of thing. But I, I think the amount of engineers that I've worked with who are highly competent, hmm. who would kill to have that level of access to, to the code that they're running so they can do that support on their own. They want to take it as far as they can, they can take it. Absolutely. I don't want to call the vendor unless I have to. And then at the end of the at the end of the day, when I do call the vendor, like I want to lay out everything that I've done so that we can skip through all the nonsense that is the beginning of that phone call. We all know what that is. You know, have you yeah. rebooted? Well, no, this is a core switch. I'm not rebooting it. You know, like that type of type of thing. Here's what I've done. Here's all the troubleshooting. This is what I've narrowed it down to. Now you have to hope that they can actually trust the fact that you've done it. Hopefully you've demonstrated competence in that so they can say, hey, yeah, you've, you've done your due diligence. Let's start where you left off. Um, but that's uh, that's an interesting component. And it is also interesting that maybe that that component of the fact that you speak software, <laughs> you know, like like they, they, maybe you can phrase it in a way. And I think that we don't often um, wrap our, our troubles uh, tickets around with these ideas because we're not developers. Mm -hmm. not realizing that ultimately they're going to end up with a developer. Cause at the end of the day, if it's not code, it's hardware. If it's hardware, you're just SOL. <laughs> like, yeah. if, if, if it's a hardware problem, you're SOL. So you, you're better hoping it's a code problem. And if you can put it in terms that lead the, the developer or someone who supports what was developed to the point of the problem, then, then your, your resolution time is probably going to be lower. I think there's a lot of interesting things that I think if you were to, to kind of analyze this whole this whole exchange, there's there's probably a lot of little interesting tidbits that maybe could help uh, maybe help people in the way they navigate support. I was just thinking when he said, um, uh, "I I know where the problem is because I've attached a debugger to the process and I can see it's segfaulting right here." Like uh, a lot of what you just said in that sentence is new information to me. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, how do I attach a debugger? <laughs> I don't know how to do that. <laughs> sure. So I guess this, this comes from that, that background I have of, um, and I, I touch on this actually in the Microtech talk that I gave. It's when I was a teenager, you know, the cool thing to do is play computer games, right? And then at some point, um, I got the bug for computers and decided maybe I want to write computer games. And there's a little bit of me that started, well, what about reverse engineering computer games? What if I edit the save file? Right, and you start learning little tools like that, and debuggers, and if I attach a debugger to this, what's actually going on inside the game? And so these these are things that I picked up, you know, thirty years ago, nearly now, um, because that that was that was the you know the thing I did to have fun was was like write little computer games, and it was 
that sort of set of skills that meant that, you know, I, I look at a piece of software running on a piece of hardware and I don't think I need to call a mechanic or, you know, I need to call the fleet services to sort my car out. It's okay. Here's the spanners. Let's open it up and see what's inside. And yeah, that's that's precisely what I did. Attached debuggers and all of the tools that I could to to FRR's processes and went, okay, where's it going wrong? And the level of sort of telemetry almost that you get out is is phenomenal if once you have those tools and the skills to to read them and to use them. Would a vendor give you that? Probably not. But I don't know, very occasionally I've, I've come across um, vendors prepared to give a debug build of, of some software. And in fact, we're running one of those um, one of those now for, for a vendor's bit of kit. They've given us a debug build because we found a, a problem. And, you know, loads of stuff's coming out the serial port now, which is fascinating to look at. Um, and we're just waiting for that box to crash now. It's, it's another one of those... When's it going to go wrong? Well, we know it happens roughly every two weeks, so let's see what happens in the next few days. But yeah, every now and then a vendor is prepared to do that, and it's it's amazing when they do, and you you really feel loved. So uh, I wonder if we can. Um, I want to turn back the clock once more and talk about one of the first times I talked with you. I don't know if you remember when that was, but I think it was June of last year. That's right, and uh, June of twenty twenty. And I'm in the U.S., so uh, you know the coronavirus pandemic and and social lockdowns for us hit on the weekend of about March 13th, 14th, 15th, around that time frame. So I talked with you just about 90 days past that, and um, and you're over in the U.K. and you're running uh, in uh, services, an internet and services uh, hosting providing company, and you had talked about building out a new pop, right? You had to build out a new pop. But without actually being there, yeah. And in fact, when I talked to you, I remember I said, you know, oh, so you're in the UK, and you had actually spun around and said, no, I'm not, and you were actually like on the countryside of France, <laughs> and you're like, right. I can't, I can't travel back to the UK because of the travel restrictions, so I'll just stay here. <laughs> yep, exactly so right. I, I wonder if you could kind of talk about what it takes to sort of build out a pop. Um, with remote hands, you know, you know, what, what sort of preparatory work and, and, and what was needed to be able to do that without actually physically being there? Okay. Um, the, the, pro the challenge we had was we needed to actually build out to three data centers in London. So it wasn't just one pop. It was two, uh, two of the data centers in the Telehouse Docklands campus in London and a, a third site in Interaction in London. And we'd started the ball rolling in February. We'd, you know, put the first bits of kit in Telehouse West. And that was on the way to traveling out to France to have a holiday. It's like, okay, well, we know it's going to take a few weeks for CrossConnect to get installed. It's going to take maybe, maybe a month for the various carriers to deliver circuits. So, you know, while we're waiting, let's go have a holiday. And while we were out there, it's like, super lockdown no no one goes anywhere and it's like oh okay what do we do do we do, do we try rushing back or well actually we're, we're not actually going to be able to make anything go any quicker because if we go back to the uk we shouldn't really be traveling between manchester in the north and london in the south to go and do a, a data center build because the uk is also headed into lockdown about a week later so at that point it was a case of okay how do we plan this project to do a build without us being there and it, it was an interesting challenge. Um, 
the main thing I think that I think the main thing that was a success for us was having a really good remote hands team. So two colleagues, um, two friends within the industry basically said, hey, you know, we're near London. What do you want us to do? Because um, we're happy to do stuff. And actually within the community in the UK, the, the community had circulated a, a little Google Doc file of, hey, who is everyone? Where are they? What can they do? What data centers are they near? What data centers have they got access to? Have they got clearance potentially to work in various different places? Information like that had been circulated. And there very much was a feel of the industry coming together to help. It didn't matter whose who's football colors you wore. It didn't matter which, which company you necessarily worked for. It was a case of, well, hey, you know, I'm going to telehouse today. Does anyone need anything else patching in while I'm there? Because there's no point loads of us all, you know, heading in for a, a half hour access request just to find a cross connect and plug it in. So there, there very much was a community spirit at that point within the whole industry. <clears throat> and that that worked massively to our advantage, especially because there are so many brilliant and talented engineers that, that we're friends with. So um, <clears throat> our our build to, to Telehouse North went really, really well. The the team at Voxility that provided our connectivity there were super on the ball. Our remote hands guys, Gary and Hal, they were just so switched on and so keen to get get things done exactly right. And it, it got to the point where we were literally ordering the equipment online because everyone buys everything online, right? <laughs> uh, we were just ordering it straight to their houses. Um, and, you know, I, I feel sorry for the families that they live with because just pallet loads of stuff of ours was just arriving. <laughs> um and yeah, we, we we sent we sent the families, you know, thank you gifts for for thank you for putting up with us as a warehouse. Um, but yeah, they they'd literally receive all the equipment, connect it up to to some out of band connectivity for us. We could spin up the initial configs, and then when they deployed them, we could get in enough to do the rest of the build. So it was, yeah, we we were very lucky to have a, a good team around us. Wow, that's incredible, Jordan. I don't remember circulating any paper around the Network Collective Slack on. Um, no, I feel we, like we're, we kind of were jerks and missed the missed an opportunity yeah. to be helpful there. That's uh, I know. <laughs> that was really I, I had no idea that happened uh, in the UK. I wonder if that happened elsewhere in the world. If you're listening to this and that happened, I want to hear the story. Like so, like if you're a listener, like. Uh, go to networkcollectors.com and, and shoot me a message because I think that's really cool. I, I had no idea, and I have lots of friends who are in the UK had not heard about this at all. Wow. That's amazing that, that people were distributing this around, and it's just completely possible that you know it just wasn't relevant to me, the guy in the US who's not tied to this thing. Um, but that's a really, really cool way to step up and help out um, and, and say like, hey, uh, we can't travel across geographic distances or borders or whatever but i i i this is my colo this is the one i live next to this is the one yeah, i go into right. all the time what can i do when i step in there is there anybody who needs help um that's a phenomenal response in this industry so i'm glad you i'm glad you brought that up that's pretty cool it was it was amazing and it, it reminded me of what the industry used to be like in the sort of mid to late 90s early 2000s because mm -hmm. certainly within manchester and within the UK more generally, you'd find a lot of network operators, they're all competitors, right? You know, whether it's hosting, whether it's like access, alternative network providers or whatever, everyone's 
a competitor to some degree, but quite a lot of them have their own little niche. So maybe these guys are focused on voice over IP hosting, or these guys are just, you know, bog standard Windows servers, or this lot do dedicated Linux hosting, whatever. And you'd find that people within the industry would refer customers to each other. You'd find people going, well, yeah, we could do that for you, but we're not really VoIP people. But we know these guys who are really good, so you should become their customers instead. And it felt like a return to, to that sort of way of working to say, well, let's, let's help each other out here because the situation's pretty bad and we're all going to have to grow our networks massively because we can just see those graphs and they are going crazy at the moment. So let's, let's try and work together and you know, focus on our strengths and very much feel like the industry came together in a, a really amazing way, um, certainly, certainly for that first big lockdown that we had in the UK. Yeah, that's really awesome. So, uh, Merrick, I want to start winding us down. Um, you've mentioned that you've given a couple of talks. You've mentioned a couple of groups um, that, that you associate with. So I wonder if you could let us know um, uh, what sort of groups are available in the UK. Um, if you're a fan listening to this and you want to get involved uh, with some of the local networking groups, uh, Merrick, what suggestions do you have? And then how can people find you online, any social media presence, if they want to continue the conversation and, and get to know you better? Sure. So the the big one, the the countrywide NOF uh, or NOG is UK NOF. I'm I'm one of the program committee there, and we're actually having our our next meeting in a few days, where we've got maybe five hours of speakers doing presentations from across the whole industry. Uh, that's at uknof.uk. That's a fairly big conference. Completely other end of the scale is an event one of my colleagues, um, well, two of my colleagues founded called Net Manchester. Uh, again, I'm now one of the the crew on on Net Manchester. It's a once a month meeting. It used to be in a in a pub in Manchester, where we'd sit down seven in the evening, grab some drinks, you know, maybe a couple of beers or maybe something non-alcoholic if if people were driving, and two, maybe three people would give a 10, 15 minute presentation about something cool that they'd done, some challenge that they'd faced recently. It was pretty informal and a bit of an on-ramp into the world of network engineering more generally, but also an on-ramp into, hey, do a presentation, talk to colleagues in a low pressure environment. It's not like getting on a stage in front of 200 people with webcast and you know big pressure, because you can have a drink to calm your nerves if you really want. Um, so that, that's Net Manchester, netmcr.uk. The London um, network community sort of then copied us, and they very, um, very openly say, we were influenced by this. It's cool, so we're doing it too. That's Net London, netldn.uk. And last week, we actually held our first joint meeting because, well, we can do that now, can't we? There, there isn't a 200-mile distance anymore because everything's just Zoom or, or some other video conferencing thing. So those, those are the sort of two main places that I'm involved with in terms of spreading clue. And that's that's very much the remit of UK NOF. It's spreading clue between network engineers. I've also spoken at the Microtech um, MUM, the users meetup uh, back in 2016, and I might do another talk in the future. Um, but those, those are the main places that I sort of frequent in terms of real world cool. places. Um, yeah. I wonder if Darren Fullwell knows about this stuff, you know, or he has he been keeping it secret from us this whole time? Oh, good. Well, I'll have to hit him up and ask. No. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And Merrick, where can people find you if they want to send you a message or, or reach out or get to get to know you or your company a little better? Sure. So on Twitter, I am Maznu, M-A-Z-N-U, and the company is Felix, F-A-E-L-I-X. Both of those are on Twitter. You can find our website, felix.net. You can look me up on LinkedIn and the company as well, Marek Izalski or Felix. Both of those will, mm -hmm. will appear on LinkedIn. Um, otherwise, feel free to just drop me an email, marek at felix.net. Really easy. Very cool. And I'll make sure to to get all of the the links and contact information mentioned for this show published, uh, maybe from the Network Collective Twitter account or on our blog somewhere. Cool. Thank you. Very cool. Merrick, thank you so much for for coming on, sharing your stories with us. Um, I, like I said, I'm absolutely fascinated with the with the very candid peek behind the curtains that you guys continue to publish on your blog. And I think it's very cool that with a very small team and some open source software, you're able to uh, provide world-class service um, uh, to people who who need services from you guys, whether hosting or 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 if you're a transit provider, anything like that. So, so super cool. You guys are doing an awesome job. And I hope to have you back um, on, the, uh, on the podcast sometime soon. Thank you. Would love to be back. Thank you for the invitation as well. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. So, yeah. right. I, think that, I think that about wraps it up. So if you enjoy this episode, you can find all of our past episodes on networkcollective.com. Uh, if you'd like new episodes to be pushed right to your device, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, all the regular places where podcasts can be found. Uh, so we've also, we've been doing the live stream, right, Tony? It's been a lot of fun. So hey. you should, uh, you should come join us. Uh, unfortunately it's not a time favorable to those in, in Europe or, <laughs> or whatever, but it's, uh, 8 PM Eastern on Wednesday nights. Uh, networkcollective.stream is the URL. Uh, you can also find us on, you know, YouTube and Twitch and all the regular places. So you go watch wherever you want to watch. We're, we're That's there. Right. Um, and we're taking we're taking parts of those live streams and publishing them. Uh, so we were segmenting them up and, and publishing them to YouTube. So even if you can't make the live event where you can badger us in the chat, uh, you can definitely watch the content later on on YouTube. Uh, it's all going to be there. So you definitely want to go to YouTube.com, find Network Collective, uh, like and subscribe. Uh, you can also find us on the regular social media channels. We're at Net Collective PC on Twitter. Uh, you can search for Network Collective both on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, and finally, if you listen to the show regularly and you appreciate the content we put out, uh, would you please consider becoming a supporter of the show? So direct support from our listeners allows us to continue producing great content while keeping advertising to a minimum. We don't ask for much, five bucks a month with no commitments at all. If you pay a year up front, it's even less than that. Uh, supporters not only help keep the show going, but they also get some nice perks like access to the Slack, which I believe we mentioned here in the show. Um, it seems to come up pretty often. It's a great resource. Um, to, to build and establish community and to, to be able to talk with peers. But you also get a private feed to all of our shows that have all our ads removed. Uh, you get Network Collective merch at our costs, which, you know, you know, you definitely need that Network Collective coffee mug. That's so right. that's right that's there. Right. <laughs> so anyway, I think that's about it today. So thanks again for joining us for today's ep episode. Thanks, Merrick. Uh, thanks, Tony, for kind of leading the way and 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 hosting this show. I got to I got to take the easy route. So we'll uh, <laughs> we'll close it up here and we will see you next time.